0: Alabama has some issues, and they are not an easy fix. It's a big story for sure. I do think, and if you listen on here in a minute, there are some things that are correctable and some things that they should do to take some of the pressure off of a group up front that is really struggling. I'll discuss Alabama. I'll discuss the college football world with you because it's a Monday edition of always college football. A great show lined up. Mondays are my favorite day of the week. Being able to look back, looking forward a little bit, drawing some conclusions, and kind of starting to look at some trends perhaps that are going on in college football. We're going to talk about Colorado and what they're currently doing in the college football world. We're going to talk about Georgia and how what I saw in the second half has me feeling very bullish about. The Bulldogs. We're going to talk about the SEC as a whole. What's the pecking order looking like? Who's the second best team in the East? Maybe it's Florida. Who's the second best team overall? Maybe it's LSU. We're going to talk about the ACC and the depth of the ACC because there's not enough people that are giving that conference as a whole the love that it deserves. I'm going to tell you the unsung hero position of college football that nobody really knows about. I'm going to tell you why there's a quarterback on the West Coast that's playing better than anybody. And he does not currently own a Heisman Trophy. And then I'm going to tell you where I would rank teams right now. The top 10 teams in college football, according to me. Granted, it's just three weeks in. A lot of incomplete grades for a lot of teams. But how I would have them stacked up at the moment based on what they've done to this point how consistently they're playing and how they've addressed issues from last year or how they've maintained or regressed in areas that were strengths a year ago. I'm Greg McElroy, along with me as always, Mark Kubiak, Jack Foster, and Jake Garcia. We appreciate you coming to us and we continue to appreciate the support that you're showing the show. We have had an amazing, an amazing start to the college football season as far as views, as far as subscriptions to our podcast. Please continue to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you name it, subscribe. If you could, leave us a rating. Five stars would be amazing. Not going to beg for it. If you don't think it's good, if you want to leave it one, that's fine. I hope you don't. (laughs) I take that back. If you're going to leave one, just don't bother. Uh, But then again, we really appreciate the continued support. And we see you guys leaving reviews. On the podcast platforms as well, especially Apple Podcasts, thank you for the reviews. We really do appreciate it. We read every single one of them. And it means a lot to us that you guys are willing to say those nice things about what we're trying to do here on the platform. So without much further ado, here are the top 10 teams in my world as I see the college football season playing out. The AP poll has never been something that I've put a ton of stock into. I think a lot of people that vote on the poll do an amazing job. By the way, it's a thankless job, and we appreciate your contributions to the sport. But I feel like we have a tendency when evaluating the poll is that, well, this team won. It wasn't pretty, but we'll just keep them where they're at until they're bounced, right? And I don't think that's always the right way of approaching it. I think we have to be willing to adapt and to evolve our poll based on how a team performs week to week. You can move up, you can move down, you can move sideways, whatever the circumstances are. If you're in the top 25 this week, doesn't mean just because you win, you're going to be in the top 25 next week. This is based on performance on a week to week basis. So I decided to put together my top 10 based on what I've seen through the first three weeks of the college football season. Now, this is going to change drastically next week based on performance. There's some great matchups coming up here in week number four. So take this for what it is right now. The way I use the poll is this is a snapshot, a picture, a photograph of the college football landscape based on what we know up to this point how teams are operating offensively and defensively, maybe things that were a problem last year that they've improved or things that contributed to their success last year. Maybe they've regressed. So as a result, they've regressed as a team. At number one, I have Georgia. You're going to say, wait, hang on a second. Slow start against South Carolina. Fair enough. More on that in a minute. Georgia in the second half is the Georgia I want to see from this point forward. That team in the final 30 minutes against South Carolina, that's a national champion right there. If we can get that continued performance, and albeit, maybe I'm a prisoner of the moment. It's the last 30 minutes of Georgia football I've seen. I know the slow starts are an issue, but that right there, that's what I come to expect when I turn on the tape and I watch the Georgia Bulldogs. At number two, bit of a surprise and a shakeup from what most people would have. I have the Washington Huskies. I think Washington right now is dominating everyone they play. You can say, well, it's against lower level competition. Fair enough. Feel how you want to feel about Boise. Feel how you want to feel about Michigan State. I can live with that. That passing attack is ridiculous. And I think they've shored up some issues on the defense that plagued them at times last year. Number three, Florida State. Florida State has the best win. You're going to say, what about the Boston College performance? You're going to notice here when I get to my 10 things I learned, It's easy to kind of lose sight of the bigger picture. Florida State is the best win of the season, and it was only improved based on LSU's performance this past weekend against Mississippi State. Some of that had to do with Mississippi State. Another part of it, though, had to do with the fact that LSU had the most complete performance of the entire weekend. Florida State beat them and beat them convincingly in week one. That's why Florida State has the best win as of right now in the college football calendar. Number four, Texas. Even though their win against Alabama... Last week, had we done this exercise, I might have had Texas at number two. Behind, I might add, Florida State. Might have had Texas at number two. Now they're down to four because Alabama clearly looking more and more human. And Texas, really not their best stuff against Wyoming. I dropped them down a couple spots from where I would have had them last week. I had them at number four. At number five, Ohio State. Actually up a couple spots from where I would have had them last week. Quarterback now, perfect. Feel great about where they're at, that position. Defensively, though, what was the big question mark about Ohio State last year? It's their defense down the stretch. Well, they have clearly addressed that issue. They went up against a Western Kentucky team. You're going to say, well, it's Western Kentucky. That's a good offense. That's a team that scores. They didn't have a whole lot of issues with them. At number six, I have the Michigan Wolverines. What had them a little higher last week, dropped them down. The offense has yet to really look consistent along the line of scrimmage. Michigan's bread and butter is running the football. J.J. McCarthy has been outstanding in the first two weeks of the season until he wasn't this past weekend. Made some careless decisions. Had a couple balls picked off. So I dropped them down to just a little bit because the identity that I've come to know about Michigan is that they are a run first outfit. And while they did so well last weekend, the offensive line doesn't look quite as dominant as it was a year ago. At number seven, I have the USC Trojans. I think USC's better on defense. Some people will say, well, they haven't played anybody. I don't disagree whatsoever, but I look at their individual personnel, and I do believe that that group collectively is better than they were a year ago. I have them at number seven. At number eight, Penn State. Not that dissimilar to where the AP poll has them. AP poll has them at seven. I have them at eight. Part of it last week, difficult road game. Defensively, I am thrilled with what I've seen from Penn State up to this point. Really love what they have going on that side of the ball. Secondary looks outstanding. Great, great, difficult plays in the secondary. Picking off passes, making life very difficult. So very impressed with what I've seen from Penn State defensively. Would like that run game against quality competition to be a little more consistent. And Drew Aller, I think, is, even though it wasn't his best stuff last weekend, I'm very optimistic about what he's ultimately going to become as a player. I have them in at number eight. Number nine, I have Notre Dame. Last week, a little sluggish, but I feel good about them. Saw them in person a couple of weeks ago. I think they're secondary. We'll find out this week against Ohio State just what they are, but I think they absolutely belong in the top nine right now. And then at number 10, very different from the AP poll, the Oklahoma Sooners. Oklahoma has always been able to score the football, but last week they intercepted five passes. And it does appear like they have taken significant strides On that side of the ball. So based on what I've seen, albeit against lesser competition, and they'll go to Cincinnati this week, albeit against lesser competitions, the area that they struggled last year appears to have taken a significant step. So I have Oklahoma, based on what we've seen up to this point of the season, in the top 10. We do it every Monday. The 10 things we learned from last week in the college football season. I actually really liked this week. I think we went in a bunch of different directions because the matchups last weekend were not crazy. We're not going to really dive specifically into matchups outside of a few teams here and there. But there were some really interesting conclusions that I was able to draw based on the consumption of college football in the last 72 hours. Let's start with number one. Look-ahead scenarios are as impactful as ever. Players used to live in a world where they were kind of shut off from the outside world. When I was playing, Twitter came into existence my fourth year in college. And we, we were, you know, aware of what was going on. But, you know, the, really the only way, I mean, you had to basically Google your team to be able to get access to information. Now, information is everywhere. And players, they read their press clippings. They're all at this point in the NIL world, They're all concerned with their brand or the perception of their team or all these other things. So players are just way more aware of what's being said and what's being talked about and the priorities that occasionally come to the forefront with fans and people that cover their team and all these other outlets. So look ahead scenarios are probably going to have as much of an impact, if not more of an impact than ever before. Look at the examples. Alabama struggles against South Florida. They got Ole Miss coming up this week. Notre Dame, sluggish, really sluggish in the first half. Struggled against uh, Central Michigan. They have Ohio State coming up this week. Florida State slept walked through the Boston College game at least early on. Struggled offensively, gave up a ton of big plays defensively. They obviously have a road trip to Clemson, the game that's been circled on their calendar all offseason. They were really sluggish there in Chestnut Hill. Texas tied with Wyoming going into the fourth quarter. Week after they dismantle Alabama in Tuscaloosa and they have to go to Baylor where they had troubles with them a couple years ago on the road at Baylor. So, you know, that game's been kind of circled and addressed and big 12 plays starting up. Want to win a big 12 championship. All of these other things that clearly look ahead scenario for the Texas Longhorns. Penn State pretty sluggish against Illinois. If not for the interceptions by Altmaier and the great plays defensively, that game could have been a lot more contentious. And Illinois, really, in the first two weeks of the season, didn't look great against Kansas, didn't look great, didn't look great in week one. So Penn State may be a little sluggish going on the road knowing what's coming up here in a week. Colorado needs double overtime to beat Colorado State. Who does Colorado play coming up this week? They play Oregon. That's the big test. That's the barometer. Is Colorado a legit contender? We'll answer that question, obviously, throughout the course of the week. Iowa up 14-10 at halftime before a nice second half against lower-level competition. So that's that's not what you come to expect from the Iowa Hawkeyes. And it wasn't just exclusive to the Power Five. It's also existed in the group of five, too. Memphis, who plays Missouri this week, they struggle with Navy on Thursday night football or Friday night football, whatever day they played. All the days kind of run together. I mean, they're in a dogfight against a Navy team that really hasn't played well at all leading up to this point of the season. And Memphis' defense had allowed like 90 yards a game prior to this matchup this past weekend. So look-ahead scenarios are present everywhere in college football, I think just because of the access to information. But if your team looked sluggish last weekend, don't lose your mind. Some of you can. (laughs) Don't lose your mind, though. It might have been more the circumstances than it was the actual concentration and the ability to get ramped up to play against a team that you should beat convincingly. Number two, Colorado's story is unlike anything I've ever seen in college football. And it's not... It's not just the the infatuation or the the polarizing nature that they've played like you either love them or you hate them. Like I personally love them, I think it's great for the sport. I think Dion Sanders is bringing in an audience of people that are that maybe don't watch college football or consume college football regularly, and everybody is either you know rooting for their success or they're rooting for their failure. It's just it's a fascinating thing to follow, and I have absolutely. Thoroughly enjoyed covering it these first three weeks. I didn't anticipate this. I don't know how anyone could have. It was a total guess as to whether or not this experiment would work. Week one, they obviously dispatch of TCU as a heavy underdog. That got it all started. Then they followed up the following week against Nebraska, looking amazing in the process. And obviously, Shador Sanders has has really broken out to the point now where he's, according to some, if you're doing week three Heisman's, He's obviously at the top or near the top of the list for just about everybody and should be. Week two, by the way, Deion Sanders' first weekend in Colorado, in Boulder. The city of Boulder made $18 million because of his presence. That's what they're saying. Tickets are going for $400 a pop for Colorado football games. Week three... Big face off, a lot of smack being talked before the game. People starting to throw jabs and barbs and Jay Norvell saying these things about Dion and Dion responding by giving everyone on the team glasses, handing out glasses to all the shows that were on campus, more on that in a second, and and really just kind of running with it. And then all of a sudden you get to game time and you got Dwayne Johnson, the rock, if you will, that's on campus, rocking a Colorado jersey guest picker, one of the biggest celebrities in the world, is there in Colorado. You got Lil Wayne, who, who runs out of the tunnel alongside the Buffaloes to get everybody fired up. You got Master P and Offset from Migos that are playing ping pong in the locker room before the game. Key Glock actually performed after the game in the Buffalo's locker room, which is amazing. You got Chauncey Billups there. You got Kyle Lowry there. It's like a star-studded affair in Colorado. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. Then you think about all the shows on campus that they had. You had Game Day. You had uh, Fox Big Noon Kickoff. You had uh, other outlets that were there as well. Then I'm watching NFL football. As soon as the afternoon games finish up, there's Deion Sanders on 60 Minutes. I mean, it is absolutely incredible to think that Colorado has sold out season tickets for the first time in 27 years. They've made $430,000 just on ticket sales in the last week. And they naturally, from a rating standpoint, 7.5 million viewers against against TCU more I think nine or so eight and a half or so against Nebraska haven't seen the numbers yet for Colorado State a game that kicked at 10 o'clock Eastern and yet here I am exhausted after calling a game and covering college football all day long I'm sitting there at 2 30 in the morning I can't turn my television off I have to watch this it is one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen and it has been so much fun to follow now we're going to find out what Colorado can do this week against Oregon and we'll break that game down here moving forward but it is really fun to have Colorado moving the needle like this and not just as a college football program, but as a a pop culture phenomenon. It's it's really neat, man. It's really, really fun. And I look, I'll be honest with you, I'm rooting for him. I want it to continue. I want it to continue to feel good because it is one heck of a storyline to follow that we haven't quite seen in college football ever. So kudos to Dion. Kudos to all the fan support that they've generated. When I got on social media, like I said, I went to bed at like 2.45 on Saturday night. The game wrapped up at about 2.24. So went to bed pretty late. I wake up the next morning. I think a lot of people probably did fall asleep during the game. Understandably so. Almost every other tweet in my timeline was something referencing Colorado. 22 million Impressions on Instagram in the last week for Colorado football, 6.3 million impressions on Twitter. We're talking about a group that is expanding beyond the college football world. It's truly remarkable. And it's, it's just an incredible storyline to follow at number three. Michael Penix is playing better than anybody at the quarterback position in college football. Now, I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, against two and and all these other things. Fair enough. Totally get that. Okay. I, I can back it up with statistical support. Every time he drops back, Washington gains 11 and yards. Think about that. Every time he drops back, Washington gets a fresh set of downs. He is getting sacked on less than 1% of his dropbacks. Less than 1%. Ball's getting out. He's uh, identifying wide receivers. And when you take into account just how often they're pushing the ball down the field, we're not talking about these throws at the line of scrimmage, right? The, The world of college offense now, because we spread people out horizontally, we now have what we call extended handoffs, which... Basically, back in the 1980s, it'd be the equivalent of a toss sweep. So you'd be under center and you'd run a toss sweep and you'd get your best athlete, a running back, out in space against secondary defenders. Now, we just throw it at the line of scrimmage and you have a couple blockers out in front, whether it's a bubble screen or a smoke screen or something like that, just right at the line of scrimmage, behind the line of scrimmage. You do a little toss sweep to the running back, but you're throwing it. You do a little jet sweep on a, on a motion right across. That's a pass now, obviously. But for all intents and purposes, it's no different than just handing it off or something that we had back in the day that was more traditional. So many coaches are relying on throws at or around the line of scrimmage. They're highly, highly, highly efficient. Well, at Washington, they have them, but it's not what they do. Nearly 20% of Michael Penix's passes travel more than 20 yards downfield. And to take into account just what a high clip that is, it's amongst the tops in college football by a mile. And also at the same time, he is off target on just 8% of his throws. Meaning only 8% of his throws this year have been uncatchable. You realize how ridiculous that is? When the throws that he's attempting are lower level completion percentage throws, and yet he's only off target on 8% of his throws up to this point. Of course, he's coming off a performance in which he threw for four seventy-three and four touchdowns against Michigan State. That's the third most in a game in Washington history. And Michael Penix now owns the top three passing performances in the history of Washington football. All four of his touchdown passes and 375 of his passing yards this past week came in the first half. Josh Rosen and him are the only Pac-12 quarterbacks in the last 20 years to have 375 and 4 touchdowns and a half, okay? What he is doing right now from an efficiency standpoint is unrivaled in the sport. And I've been high on him coming into the season. As you guys know, I had Washington winning the Pac-12 in the preseason. I love what he's doing, but he's even better than I anticipated as of this moment. And while I love Caleb Williams, I think he is incredible. Absolutely incredible the efficiency that Michael Penix is playing with is unrivaled in the sport, especially when taking into account you go on the road to East Lansing against a team that has at times struggled against the pass, but he made mincemeat out of them, and his weapons and receivers are in some ways uncoverable. Michael Penix, if I had to fill out a Heisman ballot today, he's my Heisman pick. Have you ever dreamed of hitting the road in your very own... Customized Mercedes Benz Sprinter. Follow college football all season long by hitting all the biggest games in college football's most celebrated stadiums. At ESPN, we dreamed that dream. And with the help of Mercedes Benz, we made it happen. This year, our very own Jen Latta has teamed up with Mercedes Benz designers to create a road ready, fully functional, state of the art podcast studio on wheels. The ride is pure Mercedes-Benz with all-wheel drive and the latest driver assistance, safety, and tech. The podcast studio must be seen and heard to be believed. A spacious and chill conversation space with mics, camera, and mixing board to capture the action. On board, Jen Latta will be interviewing some of the biggest names in college football. All points to Mercedes-Benz for always bringing some extra. Out back of the sprinter, they're innovating. Pushing the science of the tailgate, complete with grill, cooler, TV monitors, and more. This is hashtag van life meets the fan life. To get an inside look to this one-of-a-kind, blow-your-mind collaboration came together, visit mbvans.com slash sprinterlabs. The Mercedes-Benz ESPN College Football Podcast Sprinter coming soon to a game near you. Hey, college football fans, I'm going to let you in on a little secret that will help you win game days this season. Eckrich Smoked Sausage. You're probably asking yourself, Greg, could it be that easy? Absolutely it is. Eckrich Smoked Sausage is crafted with a perfect medley of spices for a truly rich, savory taste. They are delicious all by themselves or in any recipe you can dream up. If the word recipe sounds like a lot of work, don't worry. Visit Eckrich.com for dozens of simple, mouth-watering recipes, making your tailgate prep a stress-free event. So there you go. Eckrich Smoked Sausage is the secret to winning game days. You can thank me later. Visit Eckrich.com for more. Number four. LSU is the second best team right now in the SEC. Part of this has to do with the development of Jaden Daniels. And if you watch the performance against Mississippi State, and let's be real, a lot of this has to do with how Mississippi State decided to cover LSU. And there's still some things that I'm not quite sure what they were trying to do or what they were thinking. But we're talking about a guy that on third downs, on fourth downs, fourth and shorts, fourth and mediums, hey, Jaden, you stay on the field. We're going to trust you. And then boom. Slot fade to Malik Neighbors. They ran that play had to have been six seven times, and Malik Neighbors is incredible. We we know that he's an amazing amazing player. But if you look at just how efficient Jaden Daniels was at the position, he's got to be the number one quarterback in the SEC. Connor Wigman is is right there one and two with how they're playing at the moment. But if you look at some of the throws, man, he was four for four on throws that traveled 20 or more yards downfield with 152 and two touchdowns. And it's not like these were, you know, catch and run situations, man. He is dropping it in the bucket. And these are low percentage completion plays. And he's making it look really, really easy. He also obviously added a bunch of yardage with his legs. And as that running game, even though there were strides, there were reasons to believe that that group is starting to get a little bit better. The running backs, that is. uh, Jaden Daniels is still the biggest threat on that LSU team to be able to create balance and to take some of the pressure off the passing attack. Brian Thomas is starting to come on as a legit number two. And then you look to, well, defensively, I know that they really struggled in week one against Florida State. They had a difficult time. But they're starting to figure themselves out just a little bit. Now, can they clean up tackling perhaps? Sure. I mean, if we're going to nitpick, they can probably be a little more sound when it comes to just tackling across the board. But you think about the fact that in the first five drives for Mississippi State, they had just nine yards of offense. Just nine yards of offense on the first five drives. They registered four sacks. They registered seven tackles for a loss. They had four quarterback hurries, so they were applying pressure up front. They had Four pass breakups, including multiple tipped passes at the line of scrimmage. So how are they able to create pressure and get their hands up when they can't get home? I mean, that is very difficult to do, and I am thoroughly impressed with what I've seen since week one from LSU's defense in their front seven. The back end coverage was pretty good, relatively speaking. And look, the garbage time score, if you're going to look at it, I mean, it's really the only drive that really comes to mind beyond the you know, the drive at the end of the half where Woody Marks kind of found the edge and and was able to bust off a, a real long run play outside the tackles. They didn't really do a great job in contain, but I am very impressed with what I've seen defensively the last two weeks. And I think they're getting more and more comfortable there on that side of the ball. If there's one area where I'm maybe just still the tiniest bit concerned, it might be the offensive line. Obviously a couple penalties from that group, but overall looked like they're You know, starting to figure things out just a little bit. So that's a group that I'll continue to evaluate as they move forward. But right now, LSU playing very good football in the bounce back after what was a disappointing week one performance against the Florida State Seminoles. Number five, Billy Napier and Florida are a reminder that sometimes you just have to be a little bit patient just a little bit patient when it comes to drawing conclusions on what a team might or might not be. Now, they're starting to get it going a little bit down at Florida. Talk to my folks down there, Talk to some of my sources down there. They were extremely confident going into the game against Tennessee. They felt like they had a great plan. They feel like their quarterback, Graham Mertz, is extremely efficient. And we talked a moment ago about Michael Penix and how he's really stretching the field and is averaging, you know, 11, 11 and a half yards, air yards per attempt. Well, Graham Mertz is like in the mid fives. So quite the opposite as it relates to what they're asking the quarterback to do. Now, at some point, yeah, they're probably going to have to push the ball downfield a little bit more. But Graham Mertz is taking what the defense gives him. Completed 19 of 24 for 166. So not really the big play potential right now. But it feels like that might be coming. It feels like it could be en route here pretty soon. And when I went back and rewatched the Utah game last week, it wasn't as far off as maybe you felt like it was when watching it the first time around. There were a ton of self inflicted mistakes, there were pre snap infractions that had them behind the sticks. They got into the red zone multiple times and came away with zero points. So they did do some positive things against an excellent group defensively for the Utah Utes. So I was probably a little bit quick to judge their inefficiencies. And then upon further review, I'm starting to feel a little bit better. The offensive line is starting to come together. Their running game is very dynamic. So we know that Montrell Johnson, he's that pounded out, not a home run hitter, right? But he's going to get you the hard yardage. He's going to make a one cut and he's going to go vertical. He's going to try to run through contact and just push the pile. But Trevor Etienne is a dynamic weapon. Will he ultimately start to receive two to one touches in favor of Montrell Johnson? Probably not. I like the balance that they've tried to create there. Hey man, this guy's going to beat you up and this guy's going to take it the distance. And if you look at just how he ran in the open field, man, running away from defenders, breaking tackles, both guys, I think both really all weapons for Florida did an excellent job of breaking tackles. Now, Tennessee, a lot to be disappointed with the amount of tackles that were actually broken, but this group is more dynamic than I anticipated. And Trevor Etienne is a big reason why I'm starting to really warm on the idea that Florida might be the biggest threat to Georgia in the SEC East. Now, defensively though, that's where I'm starting to really come around. Now, obviously Tennessee, you know, first drive of the game, they they got it going, right? <laughs> but after that first drive and everything kind of settled in for Tennessee, Tennessee wasn't really able to do much. And this is the style of attack If you're Florida, that really neutralizes what is a capable offensive opponent. Tennessee had just 22 plays run. And they really couldn't do much of a job as far as creating rushing attack. Joe Milton continues to look uncomfortable. And I thought Florida's defense and Austin Armstrong, the new defensive coordinator. I I know that last week I said the Miami coordinator hires might have been the hires of the offseason. I'm now going to add Austin Armstrong to that contingent with what I've seen from that group from top to bottom in the first three weeks of the season. Because even against Utah, look, they give a big play on the first snap of the season. It happens, right? (laughs) Like a guy made a great throw. Guy got a little aggressive in the secondary. Let's be honest, not many teams are throwing a deep on the first play. But either way, they gave a big play and they really responded pretty nicely after that. So this group is starting to really come together. And then back to the offense for just a moment, because if Florida's really going to make their hay, they're going to have to continue to do a great job offensively. I love so much the way they're using misdirection. I love so much the way that they're able to kind of lean on you. And in the second half of this football game, albeit a big lead at halftime, 26 to seven, they obviously Mertz hurt his hand. So you know, that's something that we'll evaluate a little bit more down the road, but They threw the ball only four times, four times in the second half of that football game. Man, that is old school murder ball. And that's a difficult thing to manage against if you're an opposing offense trying to mount a comeback. So thoroughly impressed with what I've seen from Florida. And then just because I like to find the silver lining, you guys know me is Florida ultimately going to play their way into SEC contention this year? I'm not sure I'm willing to go that far just yet. I think the gap between them and Georgia is still fairly significant. But Florida now has gone from a team that I think you can get to a team that I'm not sure I want to play. And that's a pretty big transition over the course of a three-game season. Granted, we're just three games in, a long way to go. But Florida appears to be heading in the right direction with the right coach and the right process to return to prominence in college football. Number six, Alabama has some issues and they are not an easy fix. Okay. But here's what needs to happen. And a lot of people will look at the quarterback situation and we'll get to that in just a minute, but here's what needs to happen first. If your offensive line is a liability, hear me when I say this, if your offensive line is a liability, I'm not saying it has to be elite, but if your offensive line is a problem, you are going to have problems offensively in modern day college football. Now you can get around it with smoke and mirrors and formations and, and all these other things. Like there are ways to coach around that. Well, we have now reached the point of the season where Alabama is going to have to consider implementing some of those things. I think they came into the year. I I read into the hype. I saw them practice in person. I thought that offensive line was going to be able to maul people. Well, so far, they haven't been able to do that because the defensive lines that they've played against in the first three weeks of the season have done a lot of movement things. And when you're 350, 360 pounds and you're trying to hit a moving target, it's a lot more difficult. So the movement stuff has hurt them. How do you figure that out? Here's how. Number one, they have to be more efficient on first and second down running the football. They have to. Tommy Reese comes down from Notre Dame. Tommy Reese made a living at Notre Dame with a downhill rushing attack. They run a play called Duo, which is basically power without pullers where you just try to maul people at the point of attack. That's his favorite play. It's a statement play. It's a play that emphasizes physicality and toughness. And as of right now, that has not been an effective play for Alabama. Doesn't mean it won't be in the weeks to come, but it's not right now. So they're going to have to be more willing to try to win in the run game on the perimeter. And Alabama, I think, has enough athleticism along their front to be able to emphasize some pin and pull techniques. Now, a pin and pull technique is where you use the defensive lineman's leverage against them. So, for instance, if I'm playing right tackle, I'm right here. I'm playing right tackle, and the defensive tackle is inside of me lined up over my right guard. I, as the right tackle, am going to block down. Because I have leverage against that defensive lineman. I'm going to block down and I'm going to take that right guard and I'm going to pull him around. Pin and pull. And now you get that right guard out in space and a running back out in space, hopefully against some smaller defenders. Now, the right guard's got to be able to still do a good job in finding those smaller defenders and blocking those smaller defenders. But I do think that needs to be a more a higher priority for Alabama's rushing attack as of right now. That's where they're going in the run game. Number two, they have to resolve protection issues. Right now, the right tackle is struggling with an inside rush. The left tackle is struggling with a speed rush around the edge. Not a good place to be in, especially when you're starting quarterbacks, a right-handed passer. As a right-handed passer, I feel presence on the backside. I'm stepping up, right? I'm stepping up. Well, when your right tackle is getting beat inside, guess what? I'm stepping up into the guy that's coming inside. So they have to figure that out at the moment. Here's how you do it. You take a tight end. You line that tight end outside the left tackle and you help against that defensive end. You line a running back up on the left side of the quarterback. He helps on the defensive end. They're called chips. They're called bangs. You have to use some of those techniques to be able to help your true freshman left tackle that's struggling right now with the speed of the game. And then your right tackle can't be over-aggressive with his pass set, and he's got to understand that that defender has to beat him around as opposed to inside. So I think they're going to do some things from a formation standpoint to take some of the pressure off the edges of that offensive line. And here's the last thing that they need to start to employ. Screens, draws, and condensed formations. This is in the weeds football, guys, but this is what we do. I love the game. I love to find solutions. I love to evaluate tendencies. Pass rushers love space and rhythm. If you're snapping it on the same cadence every time, they're able to anticipate the snap and run with their ears pinned back. That's in obvious passing situations. But when you're starting to use misdirections, and you start to run screens. They can't rush upfield so significantly because the screens might hurt them. Draws. If you look like you're getting ready to throw it and they rush up field, hand the draw. Quarterback draw. That can hurt you. Condensed formations. You start to bring the receivers closer to the tackles. Tight ends closer to the tackles. And that way, they don't have as much room to operate with and they have to operate more in a phone booth. That is what you need to do from a formation standpoint and a play calling standpoint to say take some of the pressure off off the offensive line. And then at the quarterback position, as of right now, with the issues that the quarterbacks are having and the offensive line is having, the more mobile option is going to give you the better chance to be successful. So that means Jalen Milroe at this point, I think gives him the best chance to have success offensively. Whether you move the pocket with sprint outs, whether you use misdirection with fakes and bootlegs and nakeds and things like that, his legs can be a weapon and they need to use them as such. Whether it's design quarterback run, quarterback sweep, quarterback power, things like that can be beneficial to Alabama's offense moving forward. They're not completely inept. They're not. They have talent. They just need to make some adjustments to make sure that those guys aren't put in difficult situations. At number seven, Georgia in the second half of the game against South Carolina is what I want to see from them moving forward. That's what I want to see. First half, Spencer Rattler comes out. He's absolutely red hot. Dowell Logans has an amazing Loggins, excuse me, has an amazing plan, getting the ball out of his hands quickly. Spencer Rattler, one to two to three to run. He didn't hold it, and he did the best he could to try to keep that defense honest, knowing that his offensive line up to this point has been a little bit of a liability. In the second half, Georgia made the tweaks. They made the adjustments, and they got a whole heck of a lot more aggressive. They started to emphasize pressures. They started to bring guys from the second level. They started to move guys up front and twist guys and started to really start to dictate along the defensive front. Early, they looked like they were just kind of letting the game come to them. In the second half, they said, forget it, man. This guy's chopping us up. We're going to come after him. And they did just that. They made life very... Difficult for Spencer Rattler in the second half of that football game, and they need to continue to do that on defense if they're going to become the defense that they are always likely going to finish up as in the college football season. Offensively, the slow starts continue to be a bit of an issue. Okay, We understand that. They need to figure out a way to get off to a little bit better start. They have a young quarterback, probably a little anxious, probably a little nervous there in the first half of the football game. It's to be expected. We all were in our first year as the starting quarterback, but they got to find ways to make him more comfortable there in the first half. But in the second half, it really got going when the run game got going. And it's been noted that they've had a lot of issues as far as depth along the running back position. Okay. There's been a lot of issues with that. Kendall Milton has been way less than 100%, I think, in the first few weeks. Branson Robinson, obviously not available because of the injury that he suffered in fall camp. But welcome back to college football, Dejon Edwards. Big spark. Big spark after not being available the first couple of weeks at the MCL sprain. He had 20 carries and a career-best 118 yards and a touchdown he's going to be so important to their success moving forward because Carson Beck's going to be an excellent quarterback in time. But you have to take some of the pressure off the passing attack, especially allowing more play-action passes down the field. Carson Beck, once they settled in and they started to establish the line of scrimmage, he was able to hit some one-on-ones downfield, and it led to some big plays. So I think that that second-half version of Georgia is a team that nobody wants to see. They dictated defensively, they ran the ball much more efficiently, and Carson Beck got a whole lot more comfortable after halftime. The only thing that you got to address now is the kicking issues. Naturally, a problem for Georgia in the game against South Carolina, and that could plague them down the road. Hey, college football fans. Whether you're on the field or in the stands, make sure you're well protected, like having a solid defense to shut down that wide receiver in the final quarter opening lanes for your running backs to do their thing, and of course, reliability when protecting your quarterback because great coverage is a game changer. That's why Allstate provides that same protection off the field, giving you reliable coverage and game-winning protection for everything that matters, helping you stay game day ready every day. So get protected with Allstate. Visit Allstate.com or call a local agent today to learn more. Brought to you by Allstate. You're in good hands. Insurance coverage is subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. Number eight, coming into the season, all of us, self-included, well, I take that back because I had Louisville playing in the ACC championship game. But I think most of the college football media that have covered the sport believe that the ACC was a two-horse race. And that, that's totally fair, by the way. That's totally fair. I'm not saying that we were right, they were wrong, or or we're right. We might be wrong. I don't know. But there's one thing that I've found out so far this year is that the ACC is way deeper than I think anyone would have anticipated coming into the season. We know that that Florida State, at times this year, even though at times against Boston College maybe you don't feel that way, at times Florida State has been a juggernaut. We know they're legit. We know Clemson struggled week one, but the last couple weeks they've started to find their form a little bit, and I thought Kate Klubnick and the Garrett Riley experience against FAU it was really a significant step in the right direction. We'll find out where those teams stack up. Obviously, this week they play each other. It's going to be an awesome game. And I'm looking forward to uh, maybe being there. I don't know if we've announced it yet, but if you turn on ABC at noon on Saturday, I think I might be there. Uh, anyways, but it's so much deeper. It's so much deeper. And nobody really wants to talk about it because the ACC has long been a punching bag, which I don't think is fair. I felt like it was a little bit low hanging fruit. But the reemergence of Miami already have a nice win. I think a really nice win and a win that will look better in time against Texas A&M. North Carolina is the real deal. I know know a lot of people are going to sit there and say, well, what about the Appalachian State game? Fair enough. Totally understand that. That's Appalachian State Super Bowl. But I saw North Carolina with my own two eyes, man. That front seven defensively is really, really good. I think they have an All-American contender in Cedric Gray. I think they have Kamen Rucker off the edge. That guy can create his own shot. You have a former number one overall recruit in Des Evans, That front seven's really good. And I think they have an excellent coaching staff. Now they're going against a Minnesota team last week. That is offensively challenged. We understand that. But at the same time, man, this was clinical from Drake May, with the exception of the numbers were phenomenal. Obviously the interceptions are something you'd love to get out of the game. Had a few more of those than I kind of anticipated this year. They proved in week two that they can beat you on the ground as well. So this is a team that if it's not Drake made, they can actually do it in other ways. You want to sell it against the pass, fine. Here's Amari and Hampton. We're going to run it down your throat. The offensive line looks better. They've now, obviously the Tez Walker thing has been an issue at wide receiver for the first couple games. Very excited about what we saw from Kobe Pesor. I think he's got a chance to be a top flight wide receiver in this offense. And now with the addition of Nate McCollum, they're going to be even better. So they have two legitimate number ones at wide receiver right now. Guys that you really believe that probably are just getting started with what they could potentially be down the road. So Miami's legit. North Carolina's legit. Duke, I think is still really good. Riley Leonard is excellent. Defensively, there's not a team that has better structure and that's more well coached than what Duke is defensively with what Mike Elko and his staff do on that side of the ball. They're going to be a tough out for everybody. Now, do they have the ceiling that the aforementioned two have with Miami and North Carolina? I I don't think so. I don't think their ceiling's that high. But I think they're extremely well coached. I think they have an excellent quarterback. And I think everything that you get against them, you're going to have to earn. They're not going to give up free plays. They're not going to bust coverages. They're going to be sound offensively. They're going to be sound defensively. And you're going to have to play well to beat them. I think Duke's legit. And then Louisville. After the first half of the first game against Georgia Tech, I was starting to wonder about my ACC conference champion representative. I have Florida State winning it, but I have Louisville in it. I was a little worried there after the first half of the first game. Since that moment, in the last 10 quarters, Louisville has been outstanding. They're running the ball with great efficiency. They have great speed on the perimeter. The defense is probably going to get more and more comfortable as they continue to move forward. And I think they have one of the best coaches in America in Jeff Brom. So the ACC is deep and the ACC deserves your respect because for a long time, people have pointed at them and made fun of them and have said things that I I even had a a good conversation with a very, very highly regarded college football analyst that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. It works in other network, but I, I really like listening to him. I think he does a really good job. He went as far as to say that the ACC has been trash. No. No, it's not. The ACC is legit, and it deserves everyone's respect in the first three weeks of the season. At number nine, is the backup quarterback position the most important position that nobody ever talks about? Think like Nobody talks about the backup quarterback or depth that quarterback. Nobody talks about it. And yet, if you look at last year, you look at how many backup quarterbacks are playing meaningful minutes for teams that are in contention. A lot of teams are, look, your quarterback goes down, you're in trouble. We know that. That, that. That's to be expected. But if you have a backup quarterback, just ask Texas last year. When Quinn Ewers was lost and Hudson Card was inserted in the lineup, they didn't play quite as well. Obviously lost to Bama, lost to Tech, they didn't play quite as well. Having a backup quarterback is massive in college football nowadays, especially knowing the nature of the portal. How many guys are starting week one starters That were somewhere else last year buried on the depth chart. That transferred, won a starting job, and now they're at a new school. There's a million of them. There are a million. So if the gap between your starter and your backup is ginormous, then you're probably going to have some serious issues. I was on the call this past week for the backyard brawl. West Virginia loses their starting quarterback in the first eight minutes of the game. Well, the backup quarterback Nico Markiell goes in, doesn't light it up statistically, but made good decisions. Didn't do anything dumb. Just survived and advanced in the absence of their starter, Garrett Green, who's who's in in some ways a game changer. But their backup quarterback was ready for the moment, made some key passes in the process, had a touchdown pass, made good decisions in the run game in the in the zone read game, and they found their way to what was a hard-fought victory against Pitt. Having a backup quarterback is of the utmost importance. I'm going to go through a list of the teams that. Either we've seen the backup quarterback, or we need to see the backup quarterback, or you know they've gotten an injury, or they're having to bridge the gap between a, a, a young guy, maybe a freshman down the road, what have you. Alabama. We've seen three quarterbacks for Alabama so far. All right. Jalen Milrow, is the first two weeks. Tyler Buckner, clearly not the answer. Ty Simpson, maybe he's the answer. I don't know. But you got to have depth at that position. Because right now, Alabama, there are some question marks at that spot, naturally. Utah. They're sitting undefeated without arguably their best player. Nate Johnson started last week. Bryson Barnes started the first couple. Bryson Barnes, I thought, looked really good against Florida. Did some really nice things. Nate Johnson's been an incredible change of pace, but was thrust into the starting lineup last week and looked really comfortable in the process. Arizona State, they've lost three quarterbacks to injury already this year. Jane Rashad is out four to six weeks. Drew Pine got hurt against Fresno. Trenton Bourget also got hurt. So they have some issues as far as depth at quarterback. They're without three already at Arizona State. How about Pitt? A scenario here where Phil Jerkovic is completing 34% of his passes. He's not playing well. Through two terrible interceptions in the game against West Virginia, led to 10 points. Pitt lost the game by 11, I might add. Phil Dracovic, right now, if that's the best option for Pitt, they got major problems. Maybe Christian Veyer will get some looks here at some point moving forward. But if that's the best you have and your backup isn't capable of at least pushing that guy or maybe exceeding what that guy can do, you got significant issues at the position. How about Florida State? Jordan Travis a little banged up in the game this past weekend. Jordan Travis missed time last year against Louisville. Tate Rodemaker went in and played really well. But Jordan Travis, the way he plays, I mean, he's... Potentially going to be in line to get dinged up from time to time, so you got to have a guy that that can come off the bench and, and give you what you need to be able to get the job done. How about Oklahoma State? Three quarterbacks played in their blowout loss to South Alabama. They combined to p- complete just 16 of 35 passes for 114 yards. That's not going to be good enough. How about UCF? Timmy McLean gets the start after John Rice. John Rice Plumlee is going to be out a couple weeks with an injury. Baylor starting Sawyer Robertson. After Blake Shapin got hurt early on, and they got Texas coming to town this weekend. And then Nebraska, you go with Heinrich uh, Arberg in favor of Jeff Sims, who's out with a leg and looked, by the way, looked pretty dang good. Had two six, 250, 256 on the ground, or 256 through the air, whatnot. Total yards, uh, three touchdowns in the performance. You gotta have quality depth at the quarterback spot because of how much we're running quarterbacks now. We have design quarterback runs. We have, have, you know, quarterback runs off of read games. We have scramble situations. Quarterbacks are going to be subjected to contact more now than they were back in the day. And then the other thing too, defensive lines are better. Quarterbacks are taking more hits. Quarterbacks are getting beat up. So you've got to have a guy that can capably step in in a moment's notice and get you to the next week. And in some cases, get you the next few weeks in the event in which your starting quarterback is sidelined. At number ten, the Pac-12 continues to amaze. It, it really is just ridiculous what this league is doing right now. Thirty and six overall on the season, twenty-eight and two if you exclude both Stanford and Arizona State. They're four losses and their are two wins between the two. Washington, their smallest margin of victory up to this point of three thirty-three points. They're averaging nine and a half yards of play. And not a single team has shown any ability to slow down this Washington offense up to this point. Utah. Now, their wins haven't exactly been pretty. Uh, but that's kind of beside the point. I mean, you're without Cam Rising and you're without Brant Keithy. Two of your best offensive weapons. Your best player in Cam Rising your best weapon in Brent Keithy. And while the receivers and the tight ends, frankly, have done a pretty good job. When those guys get back, it's going to be a big, big difference. In the meantime, their defense is one of the best in college football. They're allowing 10 points a game and to be three and zero, knowing who you've played up to this point and what you've been without is nothing short of remarkable. Washington state's maybe been the best surprise of the college football season up to this point outside of Colorado. And Cam Ward's thrown nine touchdown passes. His rush for two more is yet to throw a pick. They're sixth nationally in scoring, 48 points a game, and 23rd in yards per play. They're averaging seven yards a play. New offensive coordinator, clearly Cam Ward very comfortable, and clearly defensively with how they played against Wisconsin. It's not like they've played slouches. They played Wisconsin and got the job done. They currently sit in the top 25 in the Welcome Oregon State in next week in what should be one of the better games of the weekend. How about Oregon State? Their rushing attack has looked dominant. I mean, absolutely dominant through the first three games. Uh, The defense was the best in the league last year, and they haven't really taken a step back whatsoever. They're 13th nationally and given up just 4.1 yards play. So the defense is awesome. The big question mark is DJ Uyunglele, who is at a solid start to the season, right? But did complete fewer than 50% last week and had a couple picks in the process. So he's got to be really, really smart moving forward as they get into PAC 12 play UCLA. We have barely talked about them, but they've won every game by double digits. Uh, they ranked top 10 nationally in yards per play, eight and a half yards per play and yards per play allowed. They're averaging just three and a half yards per play allowed. They have potentially a budding star in Dante Moore at quarterback, who I think is en route to just becoming a terrific player. At UCLA, you got Liatu Latu on the defensive side of the football He's maybe the best pass rusher on the West Coast. The defense collectively looks better and they continue to be really solid when it comes to what they can do with the run game as well. And then finally, we talked talked about them a little bit already. We know USC is legit. So we don't need to necessarily I don't I'm not selling you on SC. I think everybody's on board with what Caleb Williams and company can do, especially with the improved presence that they have defensively. But Colorado, now the, the flaws may be a little bit exploited, a little bit against Colorado State. But you think about their bounce back ability, down eight, back against the wall, 98-yard drive. That's the type of stuff, man, that you talk about forever. Uh, a resilience when you don't have your best stuff. And granted, they survived uh, a lot of miscues from Mississippi State, but, or Mississippi State from Colorado State, but they're just getting started, man. I mean, they're already surpassed expectations on what was achievable this year. Now you're looking at, it's like, all right, can they get to seven or eight wins? I mean, it's when you're thinking, no, I don't think I like the over of three and a half, which I didn't, full disclosure, because I didn't know what to expect. I was wrong. I mean, definitely wrong on Colorado. They are so far ahead of schedule and will continue to be a very difficult team to face because of their weapons on the perimeter and because of what they have at the quarterback spot with Shador Sanders. The Pac-12 is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, and it's gone next year, so enjoy it while it lasts. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football, and I want to encourage all of you to get some rest. Go to bed early. Make sure that, that the kids are all taken care of, but don't stay up watching shows after the kids go down. Or if you don't have kids, don't stay up until 2, 2.30 in the morning leading up to this weekend because we have homework. We have some ridiculous matchups to get prepared for this weekend. Florida State and Clemson, that's 12 o'clock Eastern time on ABC. Colorado, Oregon, that's 3.30 Eastern time on ABC. You got UCLA at Utah, it's 3.30 Eastern time on Fox. You got Ole Miss, Alabama, that's 3.30 Eastern time on CBS, you got Oregon State and Washington State at seven o'clock Eastern Time on Fox. You got Oregon at Notre Dame at seven thirty Eastern Time on NBC. You got Texas at Baylor. You got a bunch of other games that are highly intriguing. Highly intriguing. It is without question the best week of matchups here early in the college football season. So let's rest up. Let's be mature about our our process of being prepared to consume. 12 to 14 hours of college football on Saturday. Are you guys ready? I know I'm ready. That's for sure. Check back with us on Wednesday. We will start to dive into the week coming up. We'll do what I love, what I hate. We'll do some other takeaways that we might have from the college football weekend that was. We'll interact with you. I encourage all of you to follow us on our social media at alwayscfb. Submit a question that you want answered on Wednesday's show. That's, that's something we do. We are continuing to move in that direction. So submit a question that you want answered, and we will make sure that it makes air on the Wednesday edition of Always College Football. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark Jake Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a phenomenal day. And remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcast.